You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. A linguist. An attorney. A professional baseball player. A war hero. The story of Mo Berg, the MLB catcher who also served as a spy in World War II. Today, on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. And good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. So we're doing it, folks. This is episode three of four. I've been able to keep on track this month with posting one episode every week, which was my four for four pledge at the beginning of the month. And it's it's been good. It really has being able to set aside some time every week to dedicate to putting out this uh the show, and I really enjoy getting back into doing research and studying about a sport that I love. So, I have a great topic today that I can't wait to discuss with you. It's uh, on an individual who has been getting a lot of attention in recent uh, history, but certainly during his time did not get the credit he deserves. So, I can't wait to tell his story to you a bit more. Uh, for my deep baseball historians, this name is probably familiar to you, but hopefully, I've been able to sprinkle in some new information that's come to light to give you some fresh pointers on the story, things maybe you haven't heard before. So that's really all I have to say for the introduction. I really want to get into the topic. One thing, if you could do for me, if you haven't left a review on iTunes or your podcast app of choice, it would mean so much to me if you could just take a minute and just assign a star rating or even leave a short little blurb about uh, how much you've enjoyed the show. It really helps me get in front of new listeners, and, and I really want anybody who's interested in baseball history to have the opportunity to learn about this show. So, and even if you don't have the chance to leave a review on iTunes, hey, tell a friend. It's always helpful. But uh, that's all for now. That's through for the introduction. Let's get to our topic. Have a good day, everybody. The individual we're going to be profiling today is known to history as Morris Berg. He's more commonly known as Mo, which was his nickname during his playing career in Major League Baseball. He was born in 1902 in Manhattan to parents who were from Russia and had Jewish ancestry. Now, even though most articles you find about Mo Berg list his first name as Morris, that's actually incorrect. His birth certificate actually says Moses as his first name. Mo was one of three children born here in the United States after his parents emigrated. They came to the United States because they were seeking economic opportunity. They were also looking for religious freedom, and they found both here. His father has a great story, and I just wanted to profile it really quickly. So, 
His dad came here alone in 1894. He worked for two years as a launderer, which is not an easy job, especially considering the time period. He saved every penny he could, and he sent for his wife. The two of them were able to scrimp every penny they had once they were both together in the U.S., and they saved enough money to start their own laundry service. But that wasn't enough for Mr. Berg. In addition to being able to own his own laundry service, he really embraced that American dream, and he decided to start going to school at night to be able to become a pharmacist. He was able to do so, and when Mo was a very young age, his family moved from Manhattan to Newark, New Jersey, and his father opened a pharmacy there. Now, education was emphasized for all of the Berg children right off the bat. This was important to Mo's parents, and it certainly makes sense considering the fact that they came here wanting a better life, they had to work very hard to achieve it, and they knew education was the key for their children to be able to get that as well. So all of the Berg children were pushed in school, and it all paid off for all of them. Just as a quick overview, Mo, who is the subject of our episode today, he graduated from Princeton, he became a professional baseball player, and he became a war hero, which we're going to talk about. But his brother Samuel, as well, his older brother, became a medical doctor, and his sister Ethel became a school teacher. So education, again, very important in the Berg family, and that paid dividends later on for all of the individuals in their lives. Now, right from the start, Mo loved watching baseball. He was a huge fan from a very young age, and he wanted to play baseball, but there was only one problem. There were no Jewish youth baseball teams where he lived. So he decided to create a fake name for himself, a pseudonym. And where the Bergs lived in Newark, they decided not to live in a Jewish community. They actually decided to move to a Protestant-dominated community uh, and and try and, uh, I guess, live on the fringes, I guess you could say, of the Jewish community. So Mo took advantage of that. He created a fake name, and that name was Runt Wolf. First name Runt, last name Wolf. He went to a nearby church called the Roseville Methodist Episcopal Church, and he signed up as one of the neighborhood kids to be able to play on the church youth team. And nobody was the wiser. They thought he was just another Protestant kid in the neighborhood under this name, and he was able to play. He did all this at age seven, coming up with the fake name, signing himself up, and beginning to play baseball. Well, he continued to play even through high school. And he went to Behringer High School, and it was there that he really started to gain popularity as a talented ball player. He was named to the All-City team as third baseman, and he was known by scouts that came to watch his games as someone who had a real rifle arm and defensive ability. Now, at age 16, he graduated high school. He actually finished early, and he enrolled nearby at New York University. One year later, he decided to transfer to Princeton, where, as I mentioned before, he eventually graduated. And Moe's intellectual prowess is something we're going to talk about a lot during this episode. He was a smart guy, and he really threw himself into anything that he decided to learn, whether it was baseball or academic topics. Now, as Moe got settled into Princeton, 
He had found a love for baseball that grew, but he also developed a reputation throughout his life as being someone who was personable, friendly, talked to everybody, was even a little bit of a jokester, but also never really let anybody get really close to him. And some of that may have happened in college. So there are some stories I want to share with you that maybe could peel back some of the layers of what happened uh, with Mo that developed uh, in this way. And I do want to say it wasn't just Mo. In, in my readings about this individual, his brother and sister were both known as somewhat eccentric individuals as well that kind of kept to themselves or they were, you know, just a little bit different, I guess you could say, than uh, the rest of the, the people around them. So they all had that, that touch of being just a, a little bit independent, I guess you could say, a little bit off the beaten path. But... Um, Mo's family chose to live on the fringes of the Jewish community when they moved to New Jersey. Um, they were very proud of their accomplishments. They didn't want to pigeonhole themselves. And when they were in college, Mo was able to find acceptance in a largely Protestant population at Princeton because of baseball. And one of his teammates, who was not Jewish, decided during their college years that he was going to nominate Mo for membership into one of these prestigious dining clubs at the time that was really essential to social life at Princeton. If you were in these clubs, that was your ticket to networking with, you know, a lot of the individuals who were big names on campus. So his teammate put the name in. The individuals who looked at the applications initially said, we can't have this guy join our club. We don't want Jews as part of our society. So the teammate said that, all right, if you want me to be a member, then you need to accept Mo. That's how serious he was about his friend being able to join with him. So the club took that into consideration and they said, okay, you can join and we'll let Mo join on one condition. He can't bring any other Jews into the club with him. Well, his teammate brought him that stipulation and Mo immediately said, no, I'm not going to do that. His teammate, out of principle, went back to the club and said, well, Mo said he's not going to do it, and I'm not going to do it either. And they both declined to become members of this dining club. Now, when Mo heard about this, he felt responsible for his teammate's refusal to join, and he went back to his friend and said, look, I don't want you to have to suffer socially because of how they feel about me. And he was able to convince his friend to join the club anyways. But um, from what I read, that that experience left an impression on Mo that lasted not only during his time in Princeton, but even afterwards as well. Uh, he had a real bitter taste towards the institution as a whole, it seems. Uh, he never returned for any class reunions after he graduated. And he continued to live this life where he kind of just stayed on the edges of the social circle, always being interested in speaking to people and being friendly and being a joker, but certainly not taking that next step of developing uh, deep bonds and friendships with really anybody that he came in contact with. And that includes the fact that he never married or had children. I don't want to dive too much into his social life. It was interesting, but I wanted to focus on his, ex his exploits as a baseball player. So that's where I'm going to keep most of it. But um, certainly later on in his role uh, in World War II, you can see his his talents as a spy may have tied into the fact that he was uh, able to really not be attached to anything. He could change at a whim and really blend into the situation where he was. So just a little 
bit more on Mo in terms of um, what his life was like during college outside of baseball, because again, it really defines who he became as a person. So in addition to kind of staying on the edges of the social periphery at school, he also developed a reputation for being quite the intellect. Uh, when he wasn't on the field, he usually spent his time in the pursuit of knowledge, and he really took to learning languages. Just a small sample of some of the languages that he learned, he studied Greek, Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. He also studied German and became very proficient at it, which we'll talk about later, and he even learned Sanskrit, which is a, a dead Vedic language from the Indo-Aryan civilization uh, in Asia Minor. So even even in terms of that, um, he was just very proficient and loved learning new languages. It was said that by the time that he finished school and throughout his life at the end, he, that he spoke between 10 and 12 languages fluently. So he was a lover of learning in every way possible, and that extended to the baseball diamond, which was really his outlet outside of the classroom. Now, during his time at Princeton, he was a starter for three of the four years that he was there. He was named team captain his senior year, and he was labeled a star shortstop during his time. Now, during his senior year when he was captain, he led that team to the best record that Princeton ever had to this day. They won 18 straight games, and they handed a pitcher from Holy Cross, known as Oni Carroll, one of only two losses that he suffered as a college pitcher, which he holds the record for. And one of those losses came at the hands of Mo Berg's team. So in 1923, Mo graduated from Princeton with honors and was 24th in a class of 211. Baseball, academics, those were the two pillars in his life. During his time in college, he was scouted by several MLB teams. Two in particular really took an interest in him. One of them was the Brooklyn Robins, who are now the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the New York Giants, who are the San Francisco Giants now. They both grew uh, very fond of watching him play in college, and they were interested in bringing him on after he graduated because both cities had very large Jewish populations, and they were hoping by bringing him on the team that they would draw more fans into the stands of a Jewish background who would want to come and see one of their own playing. So both teams offered him a contract, and he decided to take the contract with the Brooklyn Robins. During his rookie year, he stood out defensively, but offensively he struggled, and that was a pattern throughout most of his career. He only hit 186 during his first year in Brooklyn. After his rookie year, he was sent to the minor leagues, and he did a little bit better. In his second year, he hit 246. And that takes us to 1925. In the 1925 season and in the 1926 season, he continued to grow a reputation around the league for being an excellent defensive player. And he played two different positions really well, both third-based and shortstop. But again, you know, the offensive skills just really weren't there. And that was immortalized uh, in a scouting report that was found where they described Moberg uh, by the phrase, good field, no hit. 
So that was kind of his uh, his shtick for most of his MLB career. So as we progress through Moberg's career, he kept making time for the other love of his life outside of baseball, and that was learning. Now, during this time, major leaguers would work in the spring and the summer, but then they were off for the rest of the year. They could do whatever they wanted. They were off contract. So Berg would use his earnings that he made during the year to travel in the off-season. And just to give you an example of some of the places that he visited, uh, he studied Sanskrit. Uh, he went to Paris, to the Sorbonne, and he wrote in his diary of how much he enjoyed French wine, women, and song. Uh, he traveled to several different destinations around the globe and really maximized his time just being a student of the world and a student of baseball. After his rookie season, just to highlight this whole, again, uh, the two pillars in his life, baseball and learning, after his rookie year as a pro baseball player, he decided, you know what, Dad wanted me to become a lawyer. I want to go back and finish that. So he enrolled as he was a full-time pro player in Columbia Law School after his rookie season. He decided he wanted to finish and become a lawyer. And this started to affect his playing time because the year after his second season, he actually showed up late to spring training because of his studies. And he was told not to do it again or he was going to get cut. And he didn't. So in 1926, he starts his law degree. And in 1930, he graduated with his law degree, passed the bar, and was offered a job with the firm Satterley in Canfield. Pro ball player, professional lawyer. So while he was considering leaving baseball and becoming a full-time lawyer, he met another lawyer named Dutch Carter. Now, Dutch was similar to Mo in the sense that he had played pro ball, and he had also decided that he wanted to become a lawyer and had gone, gotten his degree, and passed the bar. But Carter had made the decision, he was older than Mo, uh, to leave baseball early and focus on law. And he did that mainly because his parents asked him to, that they wanted their son to do this. And he told Mo that he regretted that decision, that he wished that he had stuck it out with baseball. So he advised Mo, hey, stick with pro ball now. And you can always come back to law later on in life. There will be time for that after your career is over. So Mo took his advice to heart, and he decided to not pursue the position that he was offered at Satterley in Canfield, and he went back and continued to play pro ball. And just to show you how dedicated he was to his love for baseball, in addition to the job offer he got as a lawyer, Princeton called him up and said, hey, would you be interested in coming and joining our uh, faculty and staff as a professor to teach romance languages. And he turned that down too. This guy was quite the savant, I gotta say. So Mo went back to baseball. And in 1926, going back to his career, he signed on with the Chicago White Sox. Now this part of his career is interesting because this is where he switched defensive positions. And this is where... He, the position that he ends up taking on, I don't want to ruin it just yet, uh, really became what he was known for for the rest of his career. Now keep in mind, he's only three years into his playing career. He signs on with the White Sox after his sophomore season. This is while he's in law school. And he's 
sitting on the bench. His team's in a bit of a situation. Their manager, who was also the starting catcher, was out with a broken thumb. And their manager's name at the time was Ray Shock. So Shock was out. The backup catcher got injured. So he's out. And they're in a game against Boston. And their third guy on the bench, their third-tier catcher, during the middle of the game, had his hand slashed accidentally by a Boston batter. So Shock, who's in a bit of a panic because he has no more catchers, looks up and down the bench and he asks all of his players, can any of you fellows catch? So Mo responded, quote, I think I can. So Shock walked up to him and said, well, what do you mean you think you can? Why do you think that you can't? And Mo said, well, my high school to- coach told me I couldn't. <laughs> End quote. So Shock sat down next to Berg and he said, Look, I would be obliged if you could prove your high school coach wrong. So Mo agreed. He told his teammates as he strapped on the tools of ignorance. For those of you who didn't listen to the earlier episode about uh, baseball terms from yesteryear, as he strapped on the catcher's equipment, he told his teammates, quote, If it doesn't turn out well, please send my body back to Newark. End quote. Well, Mo took the field, and he proved that, he, indeed, he could catch. Shock was so delighted after the game with Burke's performance that he came up and hugged and kissed him. Now, they kept him at that position for the next three years, and by 1929, he was the starting catcher for the Chicago White Sox. And this was really, the, I guess, the turning point in his career. He had always been known as a strong defensive player, but he really found his niche playing catcher, and every aspect of his game started to improve. So by 1929, he's the starting catcher. During that season, he hit a career-high 288 in 106 games, and he received two votes in the ballot for the American League Most Valuable Player. So he was, he was getting more and more notice as a good, great all-around player in the league. But it all came to a crashing halt in 1930, unfortunately, a year after. See, during spring training, he suffered a knee injury. His spikes got caught in the soil as he tried to change direction on a defensive play, and he tore a ligament in his knee. Now, this is a common thing that we see today, and obviously the procedures that we have are more advanced for allowing players to bounce back from this type of injury. But keep in mind, this is 1930, and the medical knowledge just was not there. And Mo really struggled for the rest of his career with the speed that he had before. And uh, he never played more than 100 games after this season. So it was certainly the peak of his career in 1930. But he didn't let that stop him. He continued to excel in the areas where he could continue to play well. And that was with his quick mind. And so he built a reputation as a very good defensive catcher. He was known, remember, in his early years in high school, he was known for having a real gun for an arm, and that continued in the MLB. He was known to be a catcher that was really quick on the stand-up and throwing the ball down the second to catch base runners trying to steal. And he used his intellect to be, to be able to help get that, you know, because every second counts in that situation. He and his second baseman would develop uh, an ability to communicate with each other that the base runners were unaware of. So he and his second baseman at the time in 1931 had uh, developed the ability to talk to each other in Latin. 
they were both learned they both knew the language and they used that and they would speak to each other in Latin and nobody else knew what was going on. And if they knew that one of the base runners also spoke Latin, they would switch to Sanskrit, which they both learned as well. So that's just one example of how Mo really used his intellect to his advantage on the field, not just off the field. He would call games with just this masterful style, and pitchers loved playing with him because he was a great battery mate. And he would even go so far as memorizing hitters' styles and pitch preferences so he could use them against them when his team came to town. This may be something that's more standard fare today for catchers to do, but again, this was the 1930s, and he's well ahead of the game in terms of preparation and using intellect as a weapon to be able to defeat teams. By the mid-stage of his career, he was one of the most sought-after catchers in the league. And everybody knew that Mo was a student of the game, that he had a large knowledge base, and he knew what he was talking about. And just to influence that, there's a story of Mo finished his, well, in his final years, he played for the Boston Red Sox. And he also served as a bench coach there after he retired. But during his time with the Red Sox, a very young Ted Williams in his second year with the Red Sox, sought out Mo for some advice. And he went to Mo and he said, what do you think makes the great hitters great? Players like Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. And it was recorded that Berg replied to Ted Williams, quote, Gehrig would wait and wait and wait until he hit the pitch almost out of the catcher's glove. As to Ruth, he had no weaknesses, He had a good eye and laid off most pitches out of the strike zone. Ted, you most resemble a hitter like shoeless Joe Jackson. But you're better than all of them. When it comes to wrists, you have the best. End quote. Just one example of the respect that other players in the league had for Mo during this time. And other conversations he may have had with other up-and-coming players, future Hall of Famers, we don't know. But this one was recorded with Ted Williams, and this certainly must have had an effect on him at a young age, on Ted, not Mo. But, uh, you know, like we talked about before, Mo was a a social guy. He didn't develop deep relationships, but he was friendly with his teammates. There's some great stories online that I read about. He was a bit of a joker as well, and and, uh, would like to have fun in the clubhouse, and He developed uh, relationships outside of baseball as well. He was known to be close with the Rockefeller family during this time, which would serve him well later on when he decided to switch careers, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Overall, Mo played until he was 37 years old, and he played for five different teams. Played for the Brooklyn Robins, the White Sox, the Red Sox, the Indians, and the Washington Senators. As we talked about, his offensive career was nothing to remember. He had 441 hits in a little over 1,800 at-bats, and he only hit six home runs his entire career. He had a lifetime average of 243, which by modern catcher standards isn't that bad. There's a story that his teammate, Dave Berg, who he was with when, when he was with the Washington Senators, that when Berg found out that Mo could speak almost 12 languages, said, quote, yeah, and he can't hit in any of them, end quote. 
and I guess that kind of summarizes Moe's offensive abilities, but let's just keep in mind that he was known as a defensive whiz, that he was highly sought after, and that he really stood out as someone that was able to use his intellect to improve his game. And I will contend for the discussion, for the debate, that Moe's ending career statistics may have been different if he hadn't have suffered that career-altering injury in 1930. And let me just submit. Remember, during his first year with the White Sox in 1928, he caught part-time and he led all catchers in caught-stealing percentage with a 60.9 hit-out rate. He was third in the American League in double plays by a catcher, and he was fifth in the AL in assists by a catcher. And that was part-time. In 1929, which was his first full season as catcher for the White Sox, he was second in the American League in both double plays and assists. He caught the third most attempted base stealers in the league. He was fourth in the league in caught stealing percentage, and he had his best season to date. In 1929, he hit 287 and had 47 RBIs. So he gets a little bit of a, a bad rap as an unfen- a, a bad offensive player because a lot of it was defined by his first two years and his final years. He had some good years leading up to that injury. But the injury happened, and we saw a increasing success rate on his offensive numbers fall off but one thing that didn't fall off again was his defense and his reputation as a reliable battery mate so even though his baseball career didn't really earn him any awards or a hall of fame induction his work off the field turned the tide of world war ii and cemented him as an american hero and we're going to talk about that more after the break If you're enjoying the episode, please take a moment to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Mostly every day we have photos, quotes, and trivia, along with some other great stories from baseball's rich past. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through a service called Anchor. They have a secure payment option through Stripe a trusted name and online payments. So you can send me a donation safely and easily simply by going to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. I just want to take a moment and thank my current donors. Thank you so much for your patronage. It does mean the world to me. Again, just go to anchor.fm forward slash rounders to donate. A link is also available in the show notes. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. And welcome back, everybody, to the show. So on this episode, just to recap, we've been talking about a gentleman named Mo Berg, who had a a talented, yet I guess you could say mostly unimpressive baseball career. He was known for being an excellent defensive catcher and someone who really had a strong knowledge of the game, but didn't really leave enough of an impact to be considered someone who would be an inductee to the Hall of Fame or, or even as a perennial all-star. But his impact really came after his playing career ended, and possibly even started during his playing career. Let me explain. 
Mo has uh, resurfaced in terms of a topic of baseball history that's become really well studied and uh, popular, I guess you could say, amongst baseball historians because of his involvement in World War II as a spy. And that's what I want to focus on in the second half of our show. So Mo, he retired in 1939, as we talked about, and he became a government official who eventually became a spy for our country during World War II. Now, when he officially became a spy for the United States, that's up for debate. We know officially on the record that he started working for the U.S. government after he retired from baseball in 1939, and he got a job with the Office of Inter-American Affairs thanks to his relationship with the Rockefellers. He was tasked immediately with traveling throughout South and Central America, and his assignment was to study the health and the fitness of the population. But he had a dual job as well in addition to that. He was tasked by the federal government to, as he traveled throughout these countries, to meet with top representatives and assess their willingness to support the Allies before war broke out, or also to assess their willingness to join the Axis powers as well. And it was thanks to a lot of the conversations that he had with certain governments in South America where he was able to convince certain South American countries to keep their loyalties with the Allied powers once war broke out. Now, in 1943, we're into World War II and the U.S.'s involvement, and he was hired as an officer in the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, and that was the forerunner to the CIA. So, Mo is on record as working for the government, traveling throughout South America uh, on behalf of the United States in a military uh, designation, and he officially worked for the OSS, the forerunner to the CIA. So we know after his playing career, yes, he was. But there's also some discussion about whether he was recruited during his playing time as well. And think about his attributes. It made him perfect for what the U.S. government would want out of a spy. He was incredibly intelligent, spoke 12 languages, was a talented baseball player, which was a perfect cover, and he had shown an ability to uh, adapt to situations because he didn't really have any attachments to anything, um, whether it be personal relationships or otherwise. He was, he was someone who could easily don one uh, aspect of someone's life or another's. He just had that ability. And so there's a, a situation I'm going to present to you. This happened in 1934. And keep in mind, Mo played until 1939. Now, by 1932, excuse me, 1934, it was post-injury, that career-changing injury that we talked about. So he was not at the top of his playing career, but he was still a respected player during this time like we talked about. So in 1934, the United States had some growing tensions with Japan. This was before the U.S. entered the war. But Japan had already been very active in invading other countries in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, excuse me. They had already started landing troops in Indochina to gather resources. There had been some conversations happening between Italy and Japan and Germany and Japan. And the U.S. was growing more and more concerned with where things were going. So to try and stave that off a bit, 
the U.S. sent a Team USA squad, for lack of a better term, to play some exhibition games in Japan in 1934. And they were hoping that baseball could help rebuild some goodwill between the two countries. This was really, uh, I guess, a team of legends, as you could, as you could call it. Uh, Lou Gehrig was on the squad. Babe Ruth was on the squad. Uh, it was stocked by a bunch of all-stars, well-known household names in American baseball. But then you had, you had Mo Berg, a guy whose lifetime average was 243, and he was certainly respected by his peers, but he was by no means a household name. So, you know, there was some, uh, some eyebrows raised as to why is Mo traveling on this team. But nevertheless, he was chosen and he went to Japan. And that could be exhibit A for asking yourself, did he have any uh, recruitment uh, involvement? I guess you could say, was he recruited by the U.S. government before his playing days were over? Well, he did join the squad going to Japan. And while he was in Japan, he uh, quote unquote voluntarily gathered intel that the U.S. later used in the war effort. Let me tell you what he did. During their off time outside of the baseball games, when they were in Tokyo, Berg decided to slip on a men's kimono, and he went to a nearby hospital in the city, went to the front desk, and told them that he was there to visit the daughter of the U.S. ambassador to Japan, who had just given birth. Completely plausible explanation. <clears throat> so he was admitted. He even brought a, a bouquet of flowers. Once he was let past the front desk and was on his way to the hospital room, he dumped the flowers, and he made his way to the roof of the hospital. Now, why would he do this? Well, this hospital was the tallest building in Tokyo during this time. He got to the roof, and hidden under his kimono, he had a Bell and Howell uh, camera that he had snuck into the hospital. He took it out, and he took panoramic so shots of the entire city with the camera, and he smuggled them back to the United States after the team left. Now, he was taking a great risk doing this. It was illegal for anybody who wasn't Japanese to take any sort of uh, footage of the city while they were there. And the American, you know, dream team was specifically told by the Japanese government, no pictures, no photographs whatsoever, no film when you're here, while you're on your visit, can't happen. So he took a huge risk by doing this. But those photographs he took... Those were used by the U.S. military later on when war actually broke out. They were referenced uh, before any bombing raids were done in Japan and on Tokyo. And it was supposedly referenced before the famous Doolittle raids that happened after Pearl Harbor, America's response after the Pearl Harbor bombings. So this is one example of Mo very early on, even during his playing days, doing something to help the war effort later on for the United States. So... I certainly think it's kind of like the perfect coincidence that he was recruited, recruited, quote unquote, uh, for the OSS, um, you know, to play on this dream team to go overseas. It's just it's too much of a coincidence that he would be asked to go play on this and do all these things while he was over there. I think he was undercover even during that time. Now, I want to give a quick overview to other things that Berg did after his playing career, because he was vital to the war effort. In 1943, one of his first assignments as an OSS officer, he parachuted behind enemy lines and went into Yugoslavia, and his job 
was to assess the situation because there was a civil war going on during World War II there where you had the current king of Yugoslavia and there were communist revolutionaries trying to overthrow him and establish, obviously, their own government. Um, but they also hated the Nazis and they were fighting the Nazis at the same time. Germany and Russia were at war during this time, so it makes sense that communist revolutionaries in Yugoslavia would want to support their their mother country. So um, Berg was you know, tasked with trying to figure out who does the U.S. back in this, this civil war because we want the one that's going to help us with the overall war effort. He ended up uh, reporting back that the U.S. should side with the communist revolutionaries and the U.S. put their efforts behind them. So certainly a big task for someone who really was new to the agency. But the mission that he's most well known for, that happened in 1943 as well. And on this mission, this is crazy, Berg was dropped into Switzerland. And once he was there, he was supposed to pose as a German businessman. And remember, he was fluent in German, so that wouldn't be too much of a stretch for him. His mission was to go to a conference where a leading Nazi scientist named Werner Eisenberg was speaking. His job was to assess how far along the Nazis were with their development of the atom bomb. And he was to shoot Eisenberg on the spot and then take a cyanide pill to kill himself before he was captured. That was his task. So as the story goes, Berg went to the conference. He located Eisenberg. He managed to get Eisenberg alone to take a walk with him after the dinner party after the conference. They're walking along. They're alone. Eisenberg concluded from his conversations with the scientists that the, the Nazis were still a long way off from completing the A-bomb. And he basically called off his own mission and reported back that we don't need to assassinate this guy. It's not a threat. By taking him out, it's not going to help or hurt their situation in, in the development of this weapon. So I guess you could say he dodged a bullet in the sense that he didn't have to take the cyanide cap. But uh, talk about a high-level mission where it's literally a murder-suicide situation, an assassination suicide, I should say. He served several other missions during World War II. He became uh, just a well-known operative for the U.S. government during this time. And after the war, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1945, there was going to be a ceremony. It was going to be you know, unveiled. He refused the award, and he never explained why. And there's been a lot of speculation as to, you know, was it tied into his personality where he didn't want the, the limelight as much? Was it anything else? Who knows? But this man was an American hero, and he refused to be recognized as an American hero. He just he didn't want the limelight. In gratitude, the MLB awarded him a lifetime of free passes to any ballpark, and it was said in his, uh, in his later years, he was uh, very uh, fond of frequenting baseball games. He would sit alone in right field with his newspapers and his umbrella, and he would watch the games, and he would read his newspapers. Uh, the, the, the story doesn't end well for Mo. unfortunately. Uh, he lived uh, with his sister and his brother for the remainder of his life after he exited the service in the late 1940s after the war ended. Uh, he didn't really end his life with any money, his relationship with his sister and brother were both strained because they 
kind of looked at him as a freeloader for living with them for long periods of time. And he died in 1970. He really didn't have any money. Uh, it was said that he was rich during certain points of his life, but he didn't end up with much. And he didn't really have any relationships that lasted beyond what he had with his brother and sister. Uh, his sister had his ashes sent to Israel to be buried, but nobody knows exactly where they were buried. And so his, his final resting place is a mystery. So Moberg lived a solitary life. He didn't let a lot of people in. And he kept his catcher's mask on his soul, really, 24 hours a day. And again, maybe that's what made him such a good spy. But his story really deserves more attention. Not only for the impact he made on baseball, but his service to our country. And it seems in recent years he's finally getting that. In 1995, author Nicholas Dawidoff, I think I'm saying his name correctly, he released a book on Moe's life, and it was called The Catcher Was a Spy, The Mysterious Life of Moe Berg. It became a national bestseller, and it was critically acclaimed, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the book if anybody's interested in reading it. I'm in the process of reading it myself. It's really good so far. Just last year, in 2018, there was a film released called The Catcher Was a Spy, and it's based on Moe Berg's life. And to top it off even more, earlier this year, 2019, there was a new documentary that was released that talks even more about the new details that have come out about Moberg's life. And that's entitled The Spy Behind Home Plate. He's getting the recognition he deserves. It's sad to me that he never um, saw any of this recognition while he was alive, but it almost seems like maybe he wanted it that way too. He wasn't one that wanted the attention. So, Mo, here's to you. And this podcast is also... Uh, add it to the list of people telling your story. Thanks for what you did for America, and thanks for what you did to America's game. That's all for this episode, everybody. For the month of July, I'm going to continue my my goal of going four for four with the weekly episodes. I have one left. So send me some encouragement throughout the month. I always love hearing from you. Thanks for listening, and remember... There are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>